We've looked at the matter of church. And just a quick review, we are taking 1 Timothy and highlighting four elements from 1 Timothy that are important both to the big C church, the universal church, as well as to the little C church, the local church. We're looking at that element from Scripture. Um, and then we'll, in the morning services, we're seeing primarily how it affects the big C church. In your small groups, which I hope you are part of and attending, you're looking at how it's fleshed out within this local body. So that's what we're doing. Uh, week one, we looked at how identity matters. In week two, how leadership matters. Week three, truth matters. And now in this final week, I want to talk to you a little bit about how relationships matter. Now, let's understand something as we begin. There are a number of relationships mentioned in 1 Timothy. It is the church's kind of how-to manual. 2 Timothy is more of a personal letter, what I call a pastoral manual. But as far as the church structurally, 1 Timothy provides a wonderful roadmap for uh, how the church is to operate. And within that set of six chapters, there's a lot of relationships mentioned. There's relationships between elders and sheep and deacons and sheep, between elders and deacons. Uh, there's a relationship there about uh, the church to its widows. There's relationships between the church and the wealthy. Uh, there's the relationship of the church to those in authority over them, kings and governors and so forth. So that's just a, a, a few of the ones listed. You should read through the six chapters. It'll take you about 15 minutes. And you'll see relationships are a, a prominent theme in the church. But there's one that's not most important, but it is in the top tier level of these relationships. It's a critical one. And it's one that we sometimes miss because really Paul references it in his address to Timothy and he uses a metaphor. And yet within this metaphor, we see a critical relationship within the church. And it's that relationship of a spiritual parent. Notice the words used in 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 and 2, and verse 18. If you have your Bibles, just go ahead and locate that chapter in those two verses. I just want to draw your attention to what Paul calls Timothy in these verses. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Listen to this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. You should circle that entire first line of verse 2. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. He's not saying he's my actual physical descendant, but he's saying in the faith, he's like my legitimate son, an offspring, a child. Meaning he sees himself as a spiritual father, a spiritual parent. He repeats this in verse 18. Do you see verse 18? Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them you may fight the good fight having faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and have shipwrecked the faith here he calls him my son and he speaks to him quite paternally quite fatherly doesn't he fight the fight stay true don't quit you can hear that that coaching kind of um uh, mentality in his voice of a father to a son and so paul here is really 
using the metaphor of a son, of a child, to indicate to us one of the relationships in the church, in God's family, is the relationship of father-son. It's, it's the parenting relationship. Now, this relationship can be categorized, described as many things. So hear carefully some synonyms that I'll use today, such as discipleship. Spiritual parenting is synonymous with discipleship. The process by which someone is born again, comes to faith, and is matured and grown up. There's a birthing room, and then there's the living room, there's the playroom. They just, we just help this person come into the faith, and we help them grow up into their faith. So spiritual parenting, discipleship, you could use the words of developing devoted followers. That's our mission here. How we do that is through celebrating, growing, and serving. But what we do is really just one thing. We develop devoted followers. It's very synonymous with spiritual parenting. You can use the word multiplication. You could say we want to be a people ready to reproduce. We use that as our real vision, that we want to become a people ready to reproduce. It's all about multiplication, reproduction, spiritual parenting, discipleship, developing devoted followers. And the phrase I'll use a lot today is that of spiritual parenting. So are you following me? This is really what Paul is kind of picturing, and I would even say, in some sense, assuming when he says, Timothy, you're my son. You're my true son. By the way, he calls him this three other times, and there are other people Paul calls his son as well, such as Titus. And so this is not a, a new concept to Paul. Again, I think in some ways he assumes this is really the way the church should operate. And so I want to explore this concept and this example today for a bit. Look at some other texts that lean into it. And I want to make one key observation along the way. And that observation is this, that spiritual parenting is the joyous responsibility and normal culture of God's family. I want to almost take the posture as Paul did that, of course this is what we do. Let's assume that we are all about and all involved in spiritual parenting, in things like multiplication, reproduction, developing devoted followers, discipleship. You tracking with me? Because we're going to see in several texts and in a clear example, say it with me, church, that spiritual parenting is the joyous responsibility and normal culture of God's family. Now, to do so, let's follow the evidence by asking some questions. Let's just see how embedded spiritual parenting or multiplication or reproduction or discipleship or developing devoted followers Let's just see how embedded this was in the early church. I want us to do that by reverse engineering this chain of relationships that exists first with Paul and Timothy. And I want to kind of back the truck up. But before I do, I want you to remember something. That though we're going to look at what happened from Paul and Timothy backwards, Paul's exhortation in 2 Timothy, I think it's chapter 2, Verse 2, I think. He says, Timothy, what you've heard and seen among me uh, and from me, commit to faithful men who can teach others also. In other words, Timothy, it can't end with you. You've got to teach faithful men. So there's another step forward. And then he says, and they can teach others also. 
So we're going to look at how, how this began backwards. But remember, in Paul's heart, it was assumed. In Paul's mind, it was clear. This has to keep moving forward. So let's ask this question first. How did Timothy become a son to Paul? Good question. He calls him his son. How did that happen? When did that happen? Where did that happen? The record is found in Acts chapter 16. So just turn back a few pages. Acts chapter 16. This is really the story of, of Paul meeting Timothy and becoming his spiritual father. Acts 16 verses 1 to 3. The Bible says this. Paul went on to Derby and Lystra. This is Paul in his missionary journeys. He's been sent out from the church at Antioch. And it says, when he got to Lystra, there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek, the implication there being an unbeliever. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him, speaking of Timothy, and Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. So he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. The point is, this is when Paul intersected with Timothy and said, Timothy, join me on these missionary journeys. And it appears that at this moment, Paul became a spiritual father to Timothy. Now, understand some things about Timothy's life. This may have been when he became a convert, or it may have been when he really began to uh, move forward in his conversion. We don't know for sure. We do know this. Timothy was brought up in a very godly home, even though he had an unbelieving dad, we think. Second Timothy would tell us that Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, taught him from a very young age the Holy Scriptures. You should read that part of Second Timothy. And so the implication is, perhaps, that really it was his mom and grandma that brought Timothy to faith. They were the means God used to see Timothy be brought into the family of God. And then Paul intersected at a crucial time in which he did not have a spiritual father because his father was an unbeliever. And so Paul became that spiritual father at a critical moment. Or it could be that his mother and grandmother taught him the word. It was in him. He knew it. And then suddenly when Paul showed up, it kind of took root and, and he embraced it and owned it, so to speak, and became a Christian then. We don't know exactly. I'm not even sure where I land on that. I do know this. By Acts 16... Timothy's a believer, and he's headed out with Paul to do missionary work, pastoral work. And at this juncture, Paul takes the role of a real spiritual father in Timothy's life. So much so that he would call him later his true son. He would call him his son. He had a very close relationship. So do you see the spiritual parenting concept kind of in play in front of us? Timothy met Paul, and Paul began to disciple. Did Paul, was Paul the means by which God, uh, that God used to convert Timothy, to bring him to faith? Maybe, maybe not. May have been his mother or grandmother, but at any rate, God intersected their paths, and Paul began to be a spiritual mentor, a discipler. He began to reproduce himself in Timothy. He began to multiply his ministry through Timothy. You follow me? He began to make Timothy a, develop, uh, a devoted follower. So that's what's happening. Now, I want to pause here for the sake of anyone who's new or maybe curious about what we mean by how does one become a disciple? How does this occur? And explain to you that within 2 Timothy, we have great insight into how someone actually becomes a disciple. Like, how does, how does someone get into God's family? How do, you, 
How are you born so that you didn't have a spiritual parent at some point? And the key is through the Holy Scriptures, understanding what they tell us about the plan of God. It's called the gospel. And the Bible lays out for us clearly that God knew man was lost and had sinned against him. And without God, we could never be right with God again. So God moved of his own initiative, out of his own character, to bridge the gap that we could not bridge. We were lost, unholy, apart from God, at odds with God because of our sin. But God moved on our behalf and sent Jesus Christ, his son, to live the perfect life that we were supposed to live but didn't. He lived the perfect life. He died in our place for our sin. He was our substitute, our sacrifice. He paid our price. So we say he was the penal substitutionary sacrifice for us. We should have died. We were the sinners, but instead Christ died for us. God, who sent Jesus, saw Christ's death, raised him from the dead, indicating to us that Christ's death and resurrection is fully sufficient to reconcile sinners to God. And now we proclaim this message that all who believe in Jesus are made right with God because of Jesus. And so this is the message we proclaim. This is how someone's born into the family of God. They realize they're lost and apart from God, but that God sent Jesus to bring them back to himself. And he calls all men and women everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. And the minute one believes in Jesus, the God-man who was our substitute and sacrifice, the minute one believes, God reconciles them to himself, saves them, and makes them part of his family. That's what the Bible teaches. That's the whole story of the Bible. If you're here this morning thinking, that's what I need is forgiveness of sins. That's the family that I want to belong to. The key action is repentance and faith. To turn from sin and believe in Jesus as the only way to be saved. You can say that right now in the chair you're sitting in. Your eyes can be open. You can say it during a prayer. The key is not necessarily the posture of your body. The real key is the posture of your heart. And it must be one of repentance. And so right now where you're sitting, you're like, Todd, that's, that's what I want to ask. I want to do what these folks talked about. I want to trust Jesus to save me then just ask God right now, through your son, God, would you save me? I know I'm lost and apart from me, but your word teaches that if anyone confesses that you are Lord and that you died and and was raised again, you would save them. Lord, I confess Jesus as the only way to be saved. And so God, would you save me through Jesus? God will do precisely that. He will save you and he'll make you part of his family What he'll begin to do then is grow you and mature you through the means of other people who are already be saved, and they become like a spiritual parent to you as a newborn in God's family. So that's what we're talking about here. And this is what Paul became for Timothy, a spiritual father. Now, we think about this chain, the question should be then, well, did Paul have a spiritual father? Good question. He did. His name was Barnabas. Look with me at Acts chapter 9. Here's an interesting set of verses about Paul, who was then known as Saul. He was newly converted. He would be an infant, like the situation described earlier. Paul had just come to Christ, and he had no credibility in the church. They were sure he was out to kill them, and he was pretending to be a believer so he could sneak in and possibly murder more Christians. 
But verse 27 of chapter 9 says this in the book of Acts, Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul, that's Paul's first name, had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. In other words, Barnabas acts as a reference for Paul in the early days of his Christian life. It's a beautiful story of Barnabas being a spiritual parent to Saul. Look over at chapter 11, verse 25. You'll see much the same theme occurring here. Barnabas is sent out, of course, and he's supposed to check in at different places. As this search went on, it says he went to Tarsus, verse 25 of chapter 11, to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, prior to chapter 13, about halfway through 13, you're going to find the same thing you read in 9, 10, 11, and 12. That it's always, watch this, it's always Barnabas and Saul every time. You get to about the midway of chapter 13 and something switches and it becomes Paul and Barnabas. What happened? Father Barnabas was raising Saul, maturing him, discipling him, developing him into a devoted follower. And he reached the point where he's like, now I've got to find someone who will be my son. And Saul becomes Paul and he becomes a father to other people like Timothy. You see that? So I believe Barnabas was the spiritual parent for, for Saul slash Paul. Paul, the spiritual parent of Timothy. So let's back this up some more. Did Barnabas have a spiritual father? Good question. I think he did. Now I'm going to give you my conjecture here, but I have it rooted, I think, in some pretty solid scriptural reasoning. Look at Acts 4, 36 and 37, would you? Here's the first opportunity to read about Barnabas. It's when the church is very young. They're probably just months old. And thousands are being saved and baptized. And there are great needs among the church. And so people are giving very sacrificially and generously. One of those who gives is Barnabas. Look at verse 36 and 37. One of the apostles uh, called Barnabas. He sold a field he owned and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is this extravagant giver. Now here he's known as an apostle, but it's not a big A apostle as one of the 12, but he's this learner, he's this sent one, he's this messenger. So the question is, well, who really discipled, who developed, who parented Barnabas? Here's what I think. I think it may have been the pastors or the elders there at the church of Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John. Which is why he's known as an apostle, one who has sent a messenger. He was learning some things from some people, and who were the sent ones then? When Peter had uh, you know, been to Cornelius, and he was, or he was going to Cornelius' house. I mean, these were the guys who were going. And, and so I think he's probably learning some traits from these early elders and, and pastors. Now, it may be that Barnabas even knew Jesus. He's in the same time frame of these guys who walked with him, so maybe... He actually followed Christ in. We don't know for sure. But I will say this. Here's my solid reasoning. He seems to surface in the very first church. It was birthed at Pentecost. He surfaces as one who's been developed, discipled, parented, and it shows in his giving. It shows in his actions. So regardless of who it was, I think we're safe to say Barnabas got his start in that first church. Are you with me? 
it's my opinion, it may have been Peter, James, or John. Could have been somebody else. But we are able to track how Barnabas got his start, which led to Saul slash Paul getting his start, which led to Timothy getting his start, which is to lead to faithful men getting their start, who then will teach others also who will get their start. Are you following me? You see this chain? You see how the spiritual parenting, this family of relationships, this, this network of disciple makers, how it works? Now, let me just paint you a picture of what this looks like in regards to people and churches. Because both are really um, seen in this example, in this chain. You can look at it in the ways of people. You can say, here's James and Peter, and then there's Barnabas, there's Paul, there's Timothy and faithful men. You could see it that way. Or you could see it from the church perspective. There's the church at Jerusalem. We see Antioch being planted. And then we see Paul being sent. And he goes to Lystra where Timothy is discovered. And next thing you know, they get to Ephesus, they plant, and Paul leaves, but Timothy stays. In fact, did you know that Timothy is the pastor at the church of Ephesus? And that's where he was when Paul wrote First and Second Timothy to him. So do you see how this, this spiritual parenting, this relationship that is normal for the church, which we consider a joyous opportunity, this is kind of assumed. It's just natural. It's what the church does. Now, when you see that, you see it in the Scripture played out both individually and congregationally, I'm sure you agree with you. are like, well, Todd, that's clear in the Scriptures. Reproduction, disciple-making, multiplication, Developing devoted followers, spiritual parenting. Yes, that's what's going on. But is there a current picture of that? Well, there are, and there's many. But let me share one with you that's especially meaningful to me. Can I? And to do so, I need four volunteers. So I want to ask Bob to help me if I could. Can you come over and help me, Bob? And then I'm going to need three other guys. Just three guys, if you'd help me for a second. I'll need the first three. Joe, can you help me? Scott, can you help me? And Jay, can you help me? Great. Jay, you're writing, I know, but can you take a break and help me for a second? So come stand right here. I need two of you on this side and then two on that side. Leave a space in the middle where I'll stand. Great. So for a few minutes, we're going to change their names, all right? Um, and I want to kind of show you this story in a modern situation of which I've been a part. I'm not saying it's the best one or a better one. It's just the one that I know very personally. So I want to share it with you, okay? For the next three or four minutes, this is not Scott, this is Ab. Can you say Ab? Ab Thomas. Ab Thomas was the family pastor of the church I grew up in. He oversaw uh, cradle to college. We had a very large church, 10, 12,000 people. So he had several youth pastors under the family pastor. One of them was the junior high pastor whose name was Richard Jones. So this is not Joe, this is Richard. So this is who? And this is? Awesome. So Ab was the youth pastor, the family pastor for many years. In the 70s, Richard was just a lost pagan high schooler in Chattanooga. But came to Christ through the efforts of the family ministry at my home church. Was discipled by Ab. In his senior year, Ab says to Richard, I really think the Lord has got his hand on you. You should come help us in youth work. Make a long story short, somewhere in the middle of his college training, Ab hires Richard to be the junior high youth pastor. It's a great story, but it doesn't end there. Somewhere in the uh, late 70s, Richard meets a guy named Todd Stiles, this little redheaded seventh grader sitting in this big auditorium 
And Richard Jones says to Todd Stiles, hey, what are you doing Saturday? I'm the junior high youth pastor. You want to come to visitation with us? And I'm like, what is visitation? He said, oh, we all go out on Saturday mornings and we just knock on doors. We witness in neighborhoods. We pass out tracts. You ought to come. It's what our youth group does. So I'm like, I'm looking for something to do. Sure. So he comes to my house and picks me up. And for the next six years, I develop a pretty fast friendship with Richard Jones. In fact, he was my youth pastor for all of junior high. But in high school, though, I had two other youth pastors. I just had a really, a, a, I had an affinity for Richard. And he's the one who taught me Greek when I was a senior. Uh, he was instrumental in a lot of my spiritual development. And this is not saying my parents weren't. I, I almost consider these two tracks. My parents are just, without a doubt, the most influential heroes of my life. But when it comes to the church and voices who speak and say the same thing your parents say, Richard was that one man who, who leaned in, and he would pick me up for, uh, we just do everything together, go out to eat. Uh, he wasn't married yet, and so we just hung out a ton. I was in his wedding when he did get married. He really discipled me. He developed me. He spiritually parented me, much like Ab spiritually parented Richard. So I grew and really felt called to ministry, entered youth ministry. Uh, Richard eventually left my home church, and I was a freshman in college. I was a junior high volunteer youth leader for Richard. I had 10 junior high guys that I met once a week. He says to me, I think Ab would like you to take my place. I'm interested. I said, you bet I'm interested. I'd love to do that. So I became, as a sophomore in college, uh, our church's junior high youth pastor. I wasn't really a pastor. I wasn't an elder. It was seen differently then. I was just really a paid junior high youth leader, okay? But my job was to teach the junior hires every Sunday night, hold retreats and disciple them and oversee the small group leaders who would do other discipling. So I loved it. I met them, about 100 junior hires every Sunday night for an hour. I just used an overhead projector and I would teach them and they were so bored, but they always came back. So I was so thankful, right? I just tried to mimic what Richard did. He was a fabulous teacher. And he used a lot of graphics and illustrations. So I just tried to mimic him. But anyway, my point is, uh, I became this junior high youth pastor and, and I was just uh, really humbled by it because uh, a seventh grader showed up one year and his name was Mike Hayne. So this is Mike Hayne for the next three or four minutes, all right? So this is who? That's, and that's, and I'm? You better get that one right. <laughs> so I meet Mike, and Mike and I become fast friends. In fact, even as, and Mike would tell you this, other folks lean into Mike, his coaches, and help disciple him, but I was part of that picture. It was in Mike's wedding, and when we launched First Family, Mike was our first youth pastor. I remember calling Mike and saying, Mike, we haven't talked in a while. I know you live in Florida, but what do you say? I'm planting a church. You're going to help me. So Mike was our first youth pastor. There was a kid in Mike's youth group in the very beginning years of First Family. His name was Brett Stiles. So today this is Brett. Mike really impacted Brett. Uh, spent time with He did a lot with Brett that I did with Mike, which Richard did with me, which Ad did with Richard. I tell you this because this past year, uh, it's been very humbling and neat to watch Brett, along with Ben Howe and other great leaders, voluntarily just lead our high school ministry with Jake. And to think about this, that he's been in the tutelage and of Jake and the mentorship of Stan and working with Ben, like to see Brett really just volunteering in the high school group and just enjoying it, I think, wow, what started in the 70s 
is continuing in the 2020s. Aren't you glad that spiritual parenting is our joyous responsibility and normal culture? I am. It's impacted my son. It doesn't say that I haven't had an impact on his life, but I'm just thankful for Mike Cain, who took an interest in Brett. I'm thankful that I had a chance to interact with Mike and that Richard invested in me and that Ab and Richard. Do you see the same thing as what the scripture lays out? And I think you could tell this story over and over again. But guys, what I want you to see is that this should not be um, considered abnormal or out of place. This is what's expected, assumed. This is normal. Hey, help me thank these guys, would you? Hey, appreciate it very much, guys. You have your original names back, all right? Can I push pause there and just share with you what I heard between services? This is not on my notes. I wasn't planning on sharing this. I didn't share it at first service. I didn't know about it. But you would be shocked. Maybe you wouldn't be. I hope you wouldn't be, actually. The amount of stories I received in first service, after first service of this very thing happening. Like one of the guys that baptized Cole. He was baptized at first service. He was baptized nine months ago. He's now baptizing someone he's discipling. Isn't that great? I was talking to one of our older members here. He brought someone to the men's conference Friday night that the Lord had laid on his heart for several weeks. He's known him for six years, and he said, why do you keep laying this man on my heart? And he said, I realize I need to invite him Friday night. Well, Friday night, that gentleman got saved. Isn't that great? So he told me, he said, that's who I'll be discipling. I'll be a spiritual parent now. Um, I heard about another story from one of our ladies, and I don't recall the details, but the same kind of thing happening. So across the church in ministries and people's lives, what you find are God birthing people to, into his family through the means of people who are already Christians because, and then he's using them to disciple them, to develop them, to spiritually parent them, to help them reproduce. And here's the key. Here's the kicker. Here's where we typically drop the ball as the American church. We know that should happen. And so we involve ourselves with it, but often we let it end with us because we love the attention we love the, the benefit, and we say, great, I've been discipled, I love it. But we forget that we now need to disciple someone, and the person we're discipling, we need to nudge them appropriately to disciple someone else. We can't let the chain stop with us. In fact, I asked someone in first service, who are you discipling? He said, myself. I said, that doesn't work. <laughs> it needs to be somebody else. We laughed, and I hope he comes back. <laughs> I think he will. He's a good friend. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Often we forget that it, the end game is not, oh, I'm finally being parented. The end, game is move, the end game is to move from a son or daughter to a parent. And who now can you be used by God to reach, to, to, to see come to Christ and to disciple? And then how can you appropriately, effectively nudge them to do the same thing. Here's something I've been doing lately. And there's a few guys in this room who will know this is true. When I enter into a discipling relationship with someone, whether I brought them to Christ and God used me that way or the way, I just kind of got them when they were young from someone else. I say to them, yeah, we'll, we'll disciple. I'll be involved in this, but here's the deal. Before we're done, you've got to have the name of someone else or we're not even starting. I want to know that what's on their mind is multiplication not just satisfaction. Like, it, it can't stop with you. So at some point in our discipleship, you gotta let me know who you're gonna start discipling. 
And if you can't agree to that, then we're not even going to be in ours. Because I don't think you have true discipleship on your mind if you're not thinking about who you can spiritually parent at some point. Does that make sense? This is what's to be the joyous responsibility and normal culture for the church. By the way, it's not just in this simple picture of people in churches, but look how this whole work at Jerusalem that began in the first century, both individually and collectively, both personally and congregationally, look how it mushroomed across the known world at that time. Look at this list of churches and cities that were impacted because spiritual parenting was the normal standard operating procedure. The church at Antioch, the church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, the church at Thessalonica, we'll show the list on the screen, the church at Galatia, the church at Philippi, the church at Colossae, the church at Rome. These are the ones mentioned in Acts. Many of these have epistles named after them. And this does not include the ones mentioned in Revelation. Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Do you see the amount of, watch this, not just countries, but regions affected because spiritual parenting was a priority relationship. And this is how the gospel got to the nations. This is how the name of Christ was spread to the known world. Through the simple concept, spiritual parenting. Or you could call it what? Discipleship. Or you could call it multiplication. Or you could call it reproduction. Or you could call it developing devoted followers. Take your pick. The point is there's a a replication occurring within the family. And those who are sons and daughters become parents. And they raise up godly children spiritually who then become spiritual parents. And this continues till the nations hear. So if you've ever wondered why we are committed to church planting, both locally and globally, if you ever wondered why we are all in to personal evangelism, if you ever wondered why by 2035 we want to send as many God-called people as possible to at least 100 different outposts, 25 of those being church plants in Iowa, especially rural areas. If you ever wondered why all those things are true, just review the New Testament. Just see the pattern of the early church and the early Christians. And this is why we are devoted, excuse me, Committed to developing devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Followers who celebrate, grow, and serve. This is why we're all in to multiplication, to becoming a people ready to reproduce, to spiritual parenting. Why? Because spiritual parenting is the joyous responsibility and normal culture of God's family. Will you say this with me? Spiritual parenting is the joyous responsibility and normal culture of God's family. And when you ponder that principle, when you mull that over, when you digest that, when you crank it over in your head, a question probably comes to mind. It did for me. As I processed this for the last two weeks, here's the question that came to my mind. So who are you discipling, Todd? It's a natural question. If it's so prominent in the New Testament, both by instruction and by example, if, if the 
the growth in the picture is like, wow, that's just a lot of reproduction and spiritual parenting and fathers and sons. Like, the question then, like, well, who am I discipling? Who am I spiritually fathering? I remember where I was when I asked that question a couple of weeks ago. And I probably thought, yeah, I got a strong list going. But 10 seconds passed, 20 seconds passed, 30 seconds passed, and I hadn't thought of a name. In all frankness, my answer to that question is really more of a confession to you. It took me too long to answer that question. When it got past 30 seconds, I, I immediately began to feel convicted. Like that, It shouldn't take the pastor of First Sunday Church that long to identify who he's discipling. I did eventually arrive at a name. I'm glad about that. But here's the stark reality of that moment with the Holy Spirit's conviction. The fact that it took me more than 30 seconds was a sign to me that I'm not making his mission the focus of my life like it ought to be. I want to confess that to you. I've grown too comfortable with people in my neighborhood going to hell. I'm just kind of too at ease with people in the metro area not hearing the gospel. I just don't let it bother me enough that there are places in Iowa where there really is no strong gospel preaching witness. I've just kind of let that be like, that's the way it is. Now on with life. And when I couldn't, within 30 seconds, think of one person that I was discipling, I realized I'm too calloused. It's not top shelf priority like I think it is. Now I want to miss something to you. I don't have a verse to back up my 30 second experiment. I don't. I can't say to you on the grounds of scripture if it takes you longer than 30 seconds you're too comfortable with people going to hell I can't say that to you all I can say to you is that personally it was a revealing moment of my heart's truest posture that did I eventually land on a name yes but why did it take me so long because disciple making, spiritual parenting, reproduction, multiplication, developing devoted followers, seeing people come from death to life, darkness to light, from enemy to family, probably isn't as much of a focus as I say it is, as I want it to be. That's a problem in my heart. And I found a place before the Lord that day and said, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me for being more focused on my agenda than yours. For being 
more concerned about my schedule than your mission. Since then, for the last two weeks, I've been able to actually list several people that not only do I think are open to disciple, being discipled with the intent of them discipling, but also those who have yet to come to Christ and, and again, intentionally just being in their life and in their way and in their path with the hopes that God would use me as a means to see them come to faith and be in his family so they could be a son or a daughter and then one day they could be a parent and they could see someone come to faith. Does that make sense? I, I want that to be what my life's about. And the fact that it took me more than 30 seconds to think of one name, I just have to admit, she's like, man, I'm probably not there like I thought I was. I told our staff that a week ago. And I apologized to them and said, that's not the model that you need or our church needs. And I'm sorry. And I want to apologize to you. That's not the model that you need in your leaders. I'm committed to adjusting whatever in my life needs to be adjusted for that reason, for God's purpose and God's mission. But I want to ask you a question now. I spent two weeks in that kind of convictional state. I've been rowing that boat. And God is gracious, isn't he? He loves us. He's like, thought I'm not done with you. Let's get back on the horse. Let's have a heart for people. Lift up your eyes. See the fields. White the harvest. Let's pray for laborers. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. And so I'm going to bring you in that same boat now. I'm going to ask you a question. Not to make you feel guilty. But perhaps it'd be a revealing moment of your heart's priorities. Who are you discipling? And if it takes you too long to think of a name, instead of getting mad at the messenger or the message, get with God and say, Lord, thank you for your grace and forgiveness and Mold my heart to be like yours, to see the fields white to harvest, to see the whole progression of spiritual parenting in the New Testament, to live my life to that end. And I'd remind you, spiritual parenting happens in all kinds of ways. Remember Lois and Eunice? They were just moms and grandmothers, so to speak. That's what they did. It's amazing to see how that was an impactful way uh, to, to direct Timothy. There's other folks in the New Testament that the disciple make in all kinds of ways. There's a, there's a broad stroke here in the how. What I want to make sure we don't do is miss the what. We must be about making disciples. Who make disciples? So we intentionally now engage in the joyous responsibility of spiritual parenting. And we consider that normal for our church family, which means... We should always be willing to ask anyone who's a member of our church, hey, who are you discipling? And when the answer's slow, let's reach over with an arm and say, it's okay, let's keep trying, we'll, we'll get this. I'll help you. Imagine a church of 800 with every member answering that question in the first 10 seconds. Wow, wouldn't that be a, just a powerful army for God's mission? So there's the question. Who are you discipling? I'm praying that you'll be able to answer that. And in your answer, you'll realize just how much relationships matter in the church. Let's pray together, shall we, family?
All of our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I'd ask you for a moment to draw a circle around your chair and just create a sanctuary of sorts, would you? Because I want to ask you, if you would, to pray for the person that you're discipling. And if you're not sure who that is, pray that God would show you right now. In fact, could we all just right now with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, could we just be willing to ask God to put a name on our heart and our mind? It may be a grandchild, it may be a child, it may be a coworker, it may be someone you meet on a regular, weekly, daily basis just in crossing paths. I don't know who it could be. But would you be willing to say, God, give me at least one name of someone to whom I'll be a spiritual parent with the intent that they one day will be a spiritual parent. Lord, Make me part of this chain that never ends. Do you have that name in your head? Would you pray for them right now? As you're praying for them, would you pray that you would be empowered by God's Spirit? That you would be one of the means by which God would accomplish His end purpose in their life.